Chapter Eight of Countdown by Kurt Becker, S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Eighteen. The winter melted into the spring, and the winds were no longer freezing knives. They had a damp softness about them, and they brought clouds which melted into endless hours of unpleasant, drizzling rain that made everybody quite uncomfortable and very cheerful. This was just what the ground needed for a good crop. The discomfort and the cheer were both typical. It seemed to Ned that the whole town was in the throes of something vague and uncomfortable. People seemed a little gayer than usual, and there was an edge of worry about the cheer. Voices were a little too merry. Laughter was a little too loud. He thought that maybe the secret knowledge he was carrying inside him made him look at everybody suspiciously, afraid that they might somehow, through some careless look or some incautious word, reveal what he had agreed to keep silent. It made him jumpy. For heaven's sake, Walter said impatiently on one occasion, when Ned had reacted somewhat vehemently to a mention of Sputnik too. What's the matter with you? You're edgier than a discarrow. Everybody is. I can't figure it. My father goes around looking over his shoulder, as if he expected someone to come out and shoot him when he wasn't looking. You should have heard him carry on about the sons of the vigilantes last week. The sons of the vigilantes were a new thing in town and Mr. Preston had suddenly appeared from somewhere shortly after New Year's Day, and had set up headquarters in an old building next to the oldest theatre in town. This theatre boasted the astonishing name of the Hillstown Cinema, and showed nothing but cowboy pictures. Mr. Preston had cleaned up the place, put up a large sign with the single word, Alert, in technicolor red, and was in business. He dealt in lightning, thunder, fire, and brimstone, and his strident voice threatened doom and destruction to everybody and everything in Hillstown, the county, Texas, and the universe, unless there was a speedy and rapid transformation. His high decibel harangues and his terrifying oratory had a sort of compelling power about them which drew people almost against their will to his headquarters. He sounded like the voice of doom, and his followers, merely a handful for a few weeks, suddenly began to grow in numbers. They were voluble, too, men and women who talked tirelessly to anyone who would listen, and even to those who would not. It's fascinating. Mike told Ned one day. They had finally managed to get away from a thin man with angry eyes and a strident voice, who forced his way into the gym after practice. I've never heard a single one of those sons mention anything they're for. All they talk about is what they're against, and they seem to be against everything but breathing, provided you don't breathe too deeply. Maybe the reason the thing's become so popular is because it makes it possible for everybody to hate and despise everybody else, and feel virtuous as all get out about it. He rubbed his hands together briskly, as if they were suddenly cold. Did you see that man's eyes? A real fanatic, if ever there was one. I'm beginning to think they're a dangerous crowd. They could be whipped up to set fire to every house in Hillstown, and still be convinced they were doing a good thing by wiping out this den of evil. They scare me. The sons became suddenly very important to Ned personally. Mr. Preston, in the middle of one of his violent harangues, dropped dead. And to Ned's surprise, Forrest Sherlock Kingsley, who had joined the movement only the previous week, succeeded Mr. Preston as chief of the Sons of the Vigilantes, a step which lent the organization additional importance and stature. Kingsley proved every bit as adept and florid an orator as his predecessor. In fact, he brought to the post the additional advantages of an excellent vocabulary and an aura of dignity which Mr. Preston had lacked. Three days after Kingsley took over the Sons, Owen, who up to this point had regarded all religion with a supercilious expression, and repeatedly stated that he couldn't possibly join any one church, because this would disappoint and anger all the others, 
became overnight an ardent son. This step added to the tensions in the Bartley household. At first Deborah, who was a Baptist, was delighted at the thought of her husband joining any group with religious overtones, but she soon discovered that one of the main duties of a son of the vigilantes was to disapprove, loudly and at length, of everybody else's attitude, activity, and thinking. Beer and tobacco were suddenly both creatures of Satan, so Owen gave up both of them. Owen had been a heavy smoker, and his lengthy business deals involving the huge farm machinery he dealt in had usually involved the consumption of many a glass of the brew. As a result, while he lived up to his renunciation with exemplary determination, he became irritable, nervous, and almost impossible to live with. Deborah bore the brunt of his increasingly sharp temper, and his righteous wrath with astonishing patience. Ned took the easier way out. He left for all saints in the morning to serve mass before Owen got up, and took shelter in his room immediately after supper, on the perfectly reasonable grounds that it was his bounden duty to keep up with his studies. Since not even a son of the vigilantes could find much wrong with doing one's duty, Ned managed to get out from under Owen's incessant complaints about everything. The door to Ned's room, however, was never an effective barrier for Owen's penetrating tenor voice, and Ned gradually learned to ignore the almost uninterrupted sound of his uncle criticizing Deborah and lamenting that the boy was spending so much time with Catholics and foreigners. Deborah, who had always looked harmless and soft, began to lose weight under the strain, and her eyes took on a haunted look. Ned thought she looked as if she were terrified of mice, and was constantly expecting to find them running up her legs. The sons of the vigilantes, among other things, disapproved of books. Only one book, the word of God, has any real value. The others are all meant to seduce and deceive, filling the mind and heart with vain ideas, with desires and lusts and wickedness. Owen, whose house at Ned's coming had contained only an uncut set of Tennyson, mouthed the syllables unctuously. Ever notice, Police Chief Drew asked Ned one night, how the sons love to roll words like seduce, lust, wickedness, and such around in their mouths? You never hear them say a word about love or charity, or faith or virtue, or anything good like that. Ned immediately took the prudent step of packing into a bundle the books he had bought and taking them over to Walt Drew's house for safe keeping where Walt willingly made room for them on his shelves. Father Carson drove by one day unexpectedly, and left Ned a bulky package, which turned out to be the priest's collection of paperback science fiction. After some thought, Ned transported these books to the school, and piled them on the floor of his locker, covering them with a the heavy cardboard to protect them from the inevitable sweaty things he jammed in with them. He read them in the gym after practice, to the amusement of the coach and the bewilderment of his teammates, who considered them for the birds. For the most part, Ned succeeded in not allowing himself to become involved in arguments with his uncle. It was hard, at times, to keep him answering back, but Father Bolton, who was very much aware of what the sons of the vigilantes did, assured him that he would accomplish nothing by arguing except make hard feelings. "'They're not interested in reasons,' he said quietly, "'and they have no concern about anybody's rights.' You just have to put up with whatever your uncle says, and remember that in scripture it says, A soft answer turneth away wrath. You just ignore your uncle's remarks and concentrate on being a good Christian. He smiled. Nobody ever said that being a Christian was easy, you know. I imagine the Lord was rather annoyed at being scourged and crucified. But he managed to bear it, and he's the example you have to follow, not Owen. I think maybe living with a crackpot son of the vigilante would do you good. I have some books you ought to read, which will make you realize how much better off you are than those poor, deluded people. And you don't have to worry about the books. If Owen thinks they're Satan's tools and burns them, I have more. 
Ned tried very hard to follow the priest's instructions, and kept a tight control over his temper and his words, avoiding Owen as much as possible, and refusing to be drawn into arguments. Whenever Owen upbraided him, which he did more and more frequently, about being a Catholic, Ned had an answer which he had worked out with Mike. "'You'll just have to pray hard that I see the light, Owen. I guess I've just not been chosen.' This baffled Owen. The sons of the vigilantes insisted that they were chosen, and this apparent oversight on the part of Providence, with the suggestion that Owen might help, served to cut the ground out from under his uncle's feet, and made it possible for Ned to turn the conversation into one of the increasingly fewer neutral channels. Ned sensed that an open break, maybe even an explosion, was bound to take place between himself and his uncle, and that there was no way he could possibly prevent it, however adroitly he managed to postpone it, by refusing to get into arguments and by pleading inability to see the light. In a dim sort of way, he felt sure that there were forces gathering for some sort of violent and definitive struggle, and he was certain that somehow he was fated to be right in the middle of it. Still, when he lay quietly in his bed at night, looking at the cold stars to the bare branches of the tree outside his window, things didn't seem too bad. He hugged his secret to himself, and thought that some day, not too long hence, he might be lucky enough to see a streak of flame rising into the sky, and hear a little later the distant roar of the spaceship's violent departure. From what he had read, and from what the paperback cover artist had imagined, he carefully formed a mental picture of what they were building, beyond the steel fence only a few miles away. It would be tall and slender, pointed and graceful, a mighty dart to pierce the heavens. It would be built in stages, which would burn their mighty charges, of exotic fuel in seconds, and send the last graceful element through the black emptiness of space, to places no man had ever seen. Idly, he saw himself as part of the crew that manned the wonder. Ned Bartley, spaceman. It had a swing to it. And after all, why not? He was young and healthy. His body was sturdy and powerful, his muscles firm. Certainly he could stand the enormous strains of fantastic accelerations and the stress of weightlessness in no grav. Silently he laughed at himself. He wasn't old enough to get a full-grown driver's license. Fat chance he had of sitting at the controls of a spaceship when he couldn't sit at the wheel of his uncle's car. End of chapter 8